Welcome to the podcast series from the Decision-Making Voices from the Field Leadership Seminars at Harvard School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.hsph.harvard.edu backslash translation. Good afternoon. My name is Scott Lee. I am an MD-PhD student in health policy here at Harvard. And it is my immense honor and pleasure to welcome and introduce from Kenya the Honorable Professor Peter Anyang Nyongo. Professor Nyongo is currently the senator representing Kisumu County in Kenya, a position to which he was elected in March of this year under the country's new federalized government. Prior to this, Professor Nyongo was a member of the Kenyan parliament for more than two decades, during which time he held cabinet posts as the Minister for Planning and National Development from 2003 to 2005, and more recently as Minister for Medical Services from 2008 until this year. Prior to that, Professor Nyongo was one of us, an academic. After obtaining his PhD in political science from the University of Chicago in 1977, he held professorships at the University of Nairobi, El Colegio de Mexico in Mexico City, and Addis Ababa University, as well as a six-year stint as head of programs at the African Academy of Sciences. During his academic career, Professor Nyongo published widely on issues of democracy, governance, and development in Africa. But perhaps more importantly, Professor Nyongo ardently agitated and advocated for all three of these in Kenya during an era of severe authoritarian rule. For these efforts, he was at turns threatened, politically detained, and exiled. His move to Mexico was not entirely by choice. He is thus, in the eyes of many Kenyans, a true freedom fighter and a consummate public intellectual. Since assuming public office in 1992 with Kenya's first democratic elections, Professor Nyongo has continued to push for a more inclusive, equitable, and democratic Kenya. In particular, as Minister for Medical Services, Professor Nyongo oversaw sweeping reforms to Kenya's hospitals, medical schools, human resource policies, medical supply and procurement agencies, and health insurance system, all with the aim of ensuring access to high-quality health care for all Kenyans. Professor Nyongo joins us at Harvard School of Public Health this semester as the Bruntland Senior Leadership Fellow. He is accompanied by his wife, Dorothy, and together they have six children, two of whom are based in the US, and one of whom, Lupita, you may have seen recently in her powerful starring role as Patsy in the film 12 Years a Slave, which is currently playing in theaters. So before we turn the session over to Dr. Jennifer Leaning, who will moderate, please join me in welcoming to the Decision-Making Voices from the Field Leadership Series, the Honorable Professor Peter Anyang Nyongo. Thank you, Dr. Lee, for a splendid introduction. Uh, it is a pleasure to see you all here and to um, give our greetings to the viewing audience. Uh, this is a, a particular honor for me to be engaged with um, Professor Nyango in this way. I 
didn't realize when I accepted Betty Johnson's invitation to uh, introduce and participate in this discussion with him <clears throat> that I actually had met him and not only had met him, had interacted with him in many ways during the time he was in Chicago. <clears throat> because in those years I was a medical student at the University of Chicago and he was a political science uh, student getting his PhD from the University of Chicago. And our focus of interest was in this <clears throat> student and young academic-led uh, center in Chicago that focused on issues of um, support for the liberation movements in Southern Africa. In that period of time, it was a very, very difficult um, set of uh, wars going on in Mozambique, Angola, other parts of <clears throat> Southern Africa. And uh, it was always, always fascinating to hear um, Peter, that's how I knew him, Peter's comments and thoughts <clears throat> on the situation in his um, home continent. Uh, and then decades have passed and here you are. Uh, and it is uh, just wonderful to meet you again. Uh, I think that um, uh, we've discussed uh, some of what he might talk about today. You are interacting uh, with a person who uh, straddles the generation of early liberation leaders and reformers and activists and heroes from East Africa and who has stayed alive, stayed smart, gotten smarter through education and has risen to positions of enormous leadership um, coming out of those early days. Not everyone made it. Uh, so you're dealing with a distinguished survivor here. And I'm hoping that those of you who haven't had a chance to meet him or interact with him during the time that remains, he's here till the end of December, um, will now be sure that you um, avail yourself of this opportunity, which is what the Brundtland Senior Leadership Fellowship um, allows all of us. Uh, I know that many of you have questions and we'll be delighted to uh, entertain them, but I'd first like to pose a, a few opening questions and responses um, um, eh, from him in order to um, open up the range of things that might actually be of real relevance to all of you. Um, <clears throat> so, Professor Nyong'o, you have um, recently been Minister of Medical Sciences for the Kenyan government, overseeing a vast and complicated health system, uh, and yet you're not a physician. Now, we know that physicians often are not very good as ministers of health, and there are many things they need to attend to. But I. I'm wondering, how did the Kenyan government and the Kenyan population and the members of parliament think about having a non-physician be in charge of their health and their health system? Well, thank you very much, Jennifer. Um, Scott, thank you for that generous introduction. Uh, first, I'm very, really, very glad to meet Jennifer again after so many years. We were members of the Chicago Committee for the Liberation of Angola, Mozambique, and Guinea-Bissau. And uh, we met people like Chisano in those days. Uh, it's good memories. But let me say this. In Kenya, really, uh, since independence, the Ministry of Health uh, has not always been led by physicians. Uh, what is interesting is that some physicians have become very good ministry, ministers of foreign affairs. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I remember Dr. Munyo Awayaki was one of the most memorable Minister of Foreign Affairs in Kenya. And it was a physician. And physicians who have been become Minister for Health have not been that successful. So I think um, generally when you go down the ages, you find that uh, 
people who have been have held a health portfolio have uh, generally been, been non-physicians. Because really, being a minister does not necessarily call for your professional qualifications most of the time. I think it calls for your grasp of the issues in the ministry, uh, how well you can articulate government policy, to what extent you are sensitive to the people's needs and concerns in that ministry, whether you can rally the leaders in the ministry to pursue certain objectives, the coalitions you can build in making sure that certain policies are followed. And I think in my case, I had two, uh, two advantages, really, that quite a number of senior civil servants in government, not just in my ministry, had been my student at the University of Nairobi. Uh, for example, in the Ministry of Health, uh, we had two ministries. The Ministry of Public Health, which was headed by um, a colleague of mine from the other side of the coalition, and then the Ministry of Medical Services, which I headed. And the person who was permanent secretary in the Ministry of Public Health was my graduate student at the University of Nairobi. And then, as fate would have it, um, uh, the people who were in the president's office had a PS who had been my student. So there were too many, a lot of linkages in government that made it possible to at least have some support, support, supporters within government to, to deal with medical services. Secondly, I think um, generally health is a very difficult ministry to run, as Professor Julio Frank here will tell you. <laughs> It's a very difficult ministry to run. One, because although health issues are important, government does not necessarily usually take health uh, to be one of the frontline ministries. Yeah. Uh, health is not like education. Is the education, if you make a policy, you'll see kids going to school in uniform in the morning and teachers holding meetings and uh, applauding what you're doing. In health, uh, you don't necessarily can, you cannot easily parade patients in hospitals, you know. So it's not as sexy as, 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 as education. So although I was very passionate about issues in health, it did not follow that government as a whole could rally behind you immediately on those issues. You really need a president who is concerned about health to make your life easier as a minister for health. Those of you who are interested in becoming leaders in health, and I think that's all of you in the room and all of you listening, uh, should take to heart a few of the points that uh, Professor Nyong'o is highlighting here. Technical expertise is not as important as really good leadership skills and management skills and organizational skills. You need quite a deep knowledge of the system, your country, the political processes. You need to be able to make alliances. It helps to have good colleagues, former students and friends in other pivotal positions. Uh, and you um, need to be attentive to local popular issues, be receptive, uh, be able to translate those issues into the realms of uh, policy and politics. Uh, and within a civil service, um, even if you're very high up, the bully pulpit may not be yours. It may be, as in this case, the president's. Um, so. That's generic, but certainly in Kenya um, turned out to be very important. Uh, could you describe um, one of the more difficult situations or 
controversies you had to deal with as, as um, a minister in this setting? I think the most difficult uh, situation I was in was trying to transform the National Hospital Insurance Fund into a National Health Insurance Fund, a process we had started in, uh, in the year 2004 when I was Minister for Planning and National Development and my colleague Charity Ngilu was the Minister for Health. And at that point in time, the National Rainbow Coalition, which was really a coalition government, uh, not as uh, difficult as the one we had recently, but the National Rainbow Coalition had swept to power in 2002 December elections to remove the long-serving authoritarian president, President Moy, from power, whose party, the Kenya African National Union, had been ruling the country since independence, as powerful as the Institutional Revolutionary Party in Mexico. And, 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 and Kanu had been in power for, for all these years. And nobody had dreamt that Kanu would ever be removed from power. In fact, uh, our presidential candidate in 2002, who had been a vice president before, had described when he was in Kanu, the removal of Kanu was trying to cut a mugumu tree with a razor blade. Uh, but, but we managed to remove Kanu with his leadership in 2002, December. And we came to power with tremendous popular support. In fact, Kenya was rated in January, February 2003 as the happiest nation on earth. <laughs> uh, and, and people expected the National Rainbow Coalition to do wonders. And indeed, we did do wonders in the first few months because we launched the free primary school education. And even 75-year-old men went to school. And it was a, it's a global phenomenon. And I th we thought then, with the Minister for Health, that yes, we can also seize this opportunity to push through Parliament a bill to introduce universal health coverage in Kenya. We did push the bill through Parliament, yes, in 2004, but then the President didn't sign it into law. And we were kind of surprised, but the two reasons he gave were, one, that the government could not afford it, and two, that really you can't force Kenyans to belong to an insurance scheme. They must have a choice. But this was really the position of a lot of donors and the position of the private sector uh, for very selfish reasons. And so we lost that battle. Now, when I became Minister for Medical Services several years later in 2008, I thought we should revisit this issue, but maybe I should follow a strategy a little bit different from the one we had followed in 2004-2005. And my strategy was use the existing legal instrument of the National Hospital Insurance Fund, which gave the minister and the board leeway to increase contributions to, to the scheme and also leeway to increase coverage and maybe just push an amendment to the act which would allow us uh, to make contributions based on percentages of one's income, which I thought would be much fairer. Um, uh, that was very easy. We did that. But then came the unions and the employers, the Federation of Kenya Employers and Central Organization Trade Unions, which fought us to no end. And they went to court blocking that thing. The industrial court gave a ruling in our favor. Then they went to the High Court to appeal. Ten months later, the, industrial, uh, the High Court gave a ruling in our favor, but nothing happened because then they threatened that they would go on strike en masse, and the government was too frightened to, to implement this policy. In the meantime, time was passing. 
So I, I kind of, we were making these changes, and actually NHIF was actually making, getting more coverage. In that moment, the government decided to expand social health coverage for civil servants, the police, and the armed forces, and, and give the responsibility to the National Hospital Insurance Fund, which was good for me because at least we were making some progress. We were not standing still. Uh, after carrying out a pilot scheme to extend coverage to outpatient care, uh, certain hospitals started signing with NHIF for outpatient care. So we're making progress, but not as fast as I could. In the meantime, the doctors and the nurses went on strike and had another problem in my hands, and they were calling me names. Uh, in the meantime, the, the Committee of Health in Parliament decided to investigate NHIF because of accusation of corruption, and they were calling me names. So times were not very easy. Uh, fortunately, the elections came uh, with a new constitution, and people forgot a little about my battles. And the new constitution even made a very radical uh, proposal in Article 43, saying that all Kenyans have a right to health care, affordable, accessible, and quality health care including reproductive health. So at least now it is written in the Constitution that whatever happens, Kenya has to implement universal health coverage as a way of implementing uh, the constitutional uh, uh, requirement. This is a saga that is, I'm sure, <clears throat> resonant to all of us watching the development and healthy rollout of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, and I. It would help us, wouldn't it, in the United States if we had a constitu constitution that has that. that article in it. Uh, and uh, the Kenyan constitution, the new one, the new one is, yeah. is really now a model for many countries around the world. And uh, it's, it's going to help. I mean, obviously, these issues of cost, um, healthcare uh, personnel buy-in, and, um, and uh, implementing access lie ahead, but yeah. it sounds as if you have really um, plowed new ground, which will allow this in the next several years to become much more of a reality, which is pretty impressive. I'd like to uh, move into another area that uh, r relates to your effectiveness as a leader and speaks to the broad gauge of experience you have. Um, you spent many years as a student, and I can testify to that, and then as a young academic rising um, in the ranks of both prestigious appointments and also um, teaching and learning, you spent a fair amount of time in um, opposition politics. And how has that prepared you for entering the mainstream and now these roles of power? In some places, it includes here in the states, students are advised to you know, be pretty careful not to challenge authority, to be flexible and bend, um, not to develop their own instincts of um, integrity and justice, uh, because in the longer run, they will then have a chance later to um, move from that platform of consciousness. Uh, what, how would you speak to how life has prepared you for what you're doing now and for what lies ahead? 
Actually, it's very interesting. I think I enjoy the position politics better than being in government. Uh, politi position politics, as Calestas Juma here <laughs> knows, he was one of us in, in those days. I mean, opposition politics, you, you, although things were difficult and you were hunted and, and, and put in police cells and in detention, and so on, somehow you felt you were making progress because you, you knew that your opponent was like Goliath. But every time, at least, you went to court and challenged them and they withdrew, you had a sense of satisfaction. And then every time, at least, uh, they changed policy to, to, to at least open up certain frontiers for participation, you felt you were doing something. And of course, in 1992, when we finally forced the president then to allow for multi-party politics, it was fantastic. You could look back and feel that all these years you've been being harassed by the police and being put in detention. Everybody was now enjoying. It was a fantastic kind of uh, uh, rebirth. You know what I mean? Uh, you felt that all these crowds standing in the stadium was a result of these things you have done. I mean, it's, it was good. I mean, you felt a kick in your somewhere that, that, <laughs> that, that, that you had done something good. But then when you go into government, achievement not as easy to come by. Uh, okay, so you hold election, you're elected. The moment you get in government, are all these people abusing you and <laughs> holding <laughs> placards and calling you names. And sometimes you wonder, what the hell is they doing with these fellows? <laughs> so I, I really think that uh, those years in Chicago uh, really prepared us. And, and then Jennifer, you know, in Chicago, when we were having this committee for the liberation of Angola, Mozambique, and Guinea-Bissau, every time you collected uh, clothes, uh, and then uh, Ruth Fast came to Chicago, and Joachim Chisano came, and you handed these things over, and you knew they were using them in the field. And then Bob and Lerop came with a Luta Continua, and you could see the reports from the field, Samora Michelle capturing territories. You know, you felt part of the, yeah. of the game, of the process. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think uh, those memories, those things uh, kind of prepare you when you come into government eventually. To, to, to be more sensitive on how people gain than, than, than what you yourself get from government. It, it makes you a kind of a different, a different uh, human being in government, I think. Uh, and, and I would say that uh, to me that is the thing that I remember most. And then finally, uh, like in this last election, which we, our party, we had really hoped this time we were going to win. And then things happened, and then you're out of government. If you've been in the kind of mood of liberation struggle, you don't get too disappointed. You kind of, uh, I think to me, accept the outcome more philosophically, and then you, you, you summon your mind to the old dictum, a lota continua. <laughs> so you, you, you hope that this is not the end of the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Are you ready to ask some questions? Um, who would like to uh, begin? There's a mic here. Yes, sir. If you could wait for the mic. It's just coming okay. right behind you, sir. Jambu. Jambu. Okay. <laughs> My name is George Mosley. I teach in the Department of Health Policy and Management here at the Public Health School. 
I just returned from two weeks in Nairobi where I was teaching in a new MBA, healthcare management MBA program at Strathmore oh. University. Yeah. While I was there, um, a summit took place at the school dealing with public-private partnerships in Kenya generally, not just in healthcare. I'd be interested in your thoughts on the value and the potential of such partnerships in Kenya. I think such partnership is extremely important in health. You, you know definitely, and I'm glad you are at Strathmore. Just before I left, I'd gone to give a lecture at Strathmore on health issues. A very good university, by the way. Uh, you know, in Kenya, healthcare has been delivered almost 50% by government to 50% by the private sector. And in the private sector include faith-based organization, which are very important in Kenya's health sector delivery system since colonial times. And in the private sector also include traditional healers uh, who done quite a major job in delivering health, notwithstanding the various difficulties that you find in that sector. Uh, traditional bath attendants, who for a long time have been key, and in certain hostels like Makalda Hostel in South Nyanza, where the medical superintendent has brought in uh, traditional bath attendants and give them a maternity ward to do their work in the hostel, so that when they get into trouble, uh, the formal sector of the hospital can help them. Now, that is what I mean by private sector. No Ministry of Health is going to go too far if you don't partner with the private sector. Uh, what I did when I was Minister for Medical Services in 2008, I, I called all the leaders of faith-based organizations to Limuru Conference Center, St. Paul's University. We had a big meeting and we agreed to sign a memorandum of understanding of the ministry working with them and agree on certain terms, you see, uh, how we're going to work together. Because without them, you can't deliver health in, in certain sectors of Kenya. And secondly, when you come to universal health coverage, give, let me give you an example. Uh, in the year 2010, July, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. My wife Dorothy is here. And, and then we suddenly realized that there were no facilities uh, that could help me in Kenya. We didn't have a single hostel with uh, radiation, for example, except Kenyatta National Hospital, which was, by all intents and purposes, not, not very advanced. So I had to go and get treatment at the University of California, San Francisco, at the Helen Diller Comprehensive Cancer Care Center which is a very good facility. But then when we came back, we got very concerned about this. And I had discussions with the, the private hospitals. We did no time. In fact, at that point in time, only MP Shah Hospital had a cancer center, but they were still in the process of building it. When I came back, as a result of our discussing these things happened, we did no time, Aga Khan University started a heart and oncology center. Nairobi Hostel started uh, an oncology and, uh, uh, center. And, and Moi teaching a referral hospital in conjunction with Indiana Hostel, 
initiated. So since that 2010, there's been a tremendous development of, of, of cancer facilities in Kenya, particularly in the private sector. Why am I saying this? Because in the event that a Kenyan needs cancer treatment, you're much more likely to get better treatment in the private sector than in the government sector. What is the barrier? The barrier is cost. If government puts in place a universal health coverage, which means that you open access, then somebody can have access to health care in the private sector as well as the public sector because there's a financial mechanism that makes you access the good facilities in the private sector. Government does not need to all the time invest in these facilities. If the private sector can do it, and then if through health insurance, people can have access to that facility. And that's why my main concern with universal health coverage is that it deals with the issue of access, the barrier to quality and affordable health care. In the Constitution, it says that Kenyans have a right of access to affordable and quality health care. It doesn't tell you where. What I'm saying is that where could easily be in the private sector. And unless the health insurance or universal coverage is robust enough, you cannot have that access. And we must make it robust enough, more robust enough so that we have that access. So these are issues of solidarity, really, yeah. which is what underpins universal coverage, doesn't it? Yeah. Everybody has to be part of it. Mm -hmm. uh, this also links to the conversations we have and an increasingly um, scholarly discussion of the burden of non-communicable disease in the developing world. Um, a very poignant and positive story. Thank you. Other, other um, questions or comments? Yes, please, in the back. Hello, my name is Lily Muldoon. I'm a MPH student in the Global Health and Populations Program. And I'm actually going to be going to your home province of Kenya, or of Kisumu, mm -hmm. for my practicum in December and January. So I'm particularly interested in your ideas and wisdom. But I have a more overarching question with regards to donor funding. Um, from my international experience and what I've been learning in the program is about the prevalence of donor-driven development and that a lot of our funding is being um, channeled through these vertical programs. And I'm curious how you, when you were in the position of the Minister of Medical Services, was able to direct this funding out of these silos and into issues that you have found to be the most important um, to meet your objectives of your country. Asante. Asante Dadangu. Now, uh, I, I will answer that question with reference to one specific issue that I handled in the Ministry of Medical Services very successfully. I mean, it's an issue that I'm proud of. If I didn't do anything else, I did, that one was successful. <laughs> and, and it was successful because I approached it rather unconventionally. Uh, and on, in the first week or month of being in office, I've learned that really if you are in government and you're going to, go, you're going to do something, do it in the first month. Don't wait, and don't be too worried about the laws and the regulations and so on. <laughs> because if you are, you get nowhere. I, I, I followed the law to the letter uh, in the issue of National Hospital Insurance Fund. And I didn't go as far as when I did the Kenya Medical uh, Supplies Agency, which is a supplies agency for some pharmaceuticals and drugs and so on. What happened with 
Kenya Medical Supplies Agency, KEMSA, is when I became minister, it was in a mess. I got in and my permanent secretary came and said, look, we have pending bills running to about uh, 2.8 billion Kenyan shillings of service providers who have not been paid. And then we, when we looked at the files, we say we could divide them in three categories. One, genuine pending bills. Two, doubtful pending bills. And three, fraudulent pending bills. And I said, the fraudulent one, forget. You just tell them we are not paying them. The, 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 the doubtful <coughs> one, let's look at them. The genuine one, please go ahead and pay. So it's this middle lot that are important to me at this point in time. Uh, and when we did that, then I say the problem is not really the supplier. The problem is ourselves because KEMS has not been doing a good job. And so I called the KEMSA board and I told them why this. The board started fighting in the boardroom in front of me. The chairman, the CEO, the member, they couldn't agree. So when they left, I told the permanent secretary, write uh, the chairman of the board a letter saying the board is suspended. Uh, the CEO is sent on compulsory leave. The acting CEO will take over. We are going to establish a caretaker committee, give them 90 days to write new rules and new procedures for running cancer. And after 90 days, I'll appoint a new board. So the caretaker committee took over with very strict terms of reference, which you had gazetted. This was against the law, by the way, because two weeks later, the head of public service wrote from my permanent secretary and telling that, tell your minister that she had done an illegal thing, illegal thing. But the thing was popular. So legality was swept aside by popularity. So we did it and streamlined KEMSA. Now, KEMSA had another problem, is that the donors, as you say, used to purchase drugs and send them to KEMSA for distribution without giving KEMSA any money for transport. And then without letting KEMSA know that these this, this drugs were needed where. So the donors say, we have purchased these drugs for this region. So KEMSA said, but why do you just purchase drugs without informing us? Say, well, that is the sector of, of health that we are concerned with. And then those are the reasons why we are pending bills too, because KEMSA could not keep track of these um, medicines that used to arrive haphazardly. So I called also the donor and said, we are not going to do that. If you want to purchase drugs, we have one purchasing entity called KEMSA. You'll give money to them, and then they will integrate this purchase within the overall. That kind of purchase also led to a very ridiculous uh, instances where, for example, in Mandera District Hospital, up in the north, a donor would purchase malarial drugs. KEMSA would also supply their standard kits. And you'd find that Mandera, which has very uh, few cases of malaria, as an oversupply of malaria drugs, whereas Homer Bay, where malaria cases are very high, is undersupplied. So these irrationalities of donor doing their things uh, had to put uh, right. And we did it by really revising the policies of CAMSA, bringing donors in. And in the end, the USID actually supported us and the World Bank in, in putting in place an enterprise resource program for proper management of cancer supply of drugs. And I think today, what I'm very proud of is CAMSA is much better run. We had uh, less oversupply of drugs. We streamlined the stealing of drugs by transporters when they go to facilities. Uh, and I think we are in a much happier place now than, than then. And the donors, of course, came in line. But at least that is one area of dealing with donors that, that we are successful in. I don't think we are very up to now, I don't know what's happening, but 
they still have had certain silos in the health sectors. And the health sector, Julio, happens to attract a lot of donors. I think it's an area in which donors are very active uh, because I think the health sector, uh, following HIV AIDS and so on, uh, honestly requires a lot of international collaboration. But I think that collaboration should be better managed nationally. That was an unexpectedly detailed answer, but it was uh, very instructive, right? You see, you see someone with expertise in management and budget and finance pushing back at the donors uh, at the national level. That's probably what's required much more often and in a more widespread way. Because uh, even the donors, this USAID, they're now becoming aware that <clears throat> this whole structure of donor-driven aid in the health sector has become quite lopsided and always inefficient. Uh, other questions? Yes, please. Thank you, Professor Nyongo. My name is Situnya Matenge. I'm from Botswana, and I am an MPH um, candidate here at the School of Public Health doing the um, global health concentration. My question has two parts to it. Firstly, I'd like to know what um, you'd consider to be the most important lesson that you learned as a uh, Minister of Medical Services in Kenya. And secondly, I'm also um, interested to know uh, if fate were to have you um, reassume the role of uh, Minister of Health, what you would uh, do differently, and um, if so, what would that um, thing be? Thank you. I was going to say, tell you that I would run away on the first day. <laughs> 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 but uh, what most important lesson that I learned as a minister I think the most important lesson I learned was that things which you perceive as self-evident, like say in the American Constitution, we hold these truths to be self-evident. They're not always self-evident to everybody. Uh, they're not. And you may think they're self-evident, you really flog yourself to do them, and you wonder why people are not seeing this. Uh, secondly, that reason does not always carry the day in politics. <laughs> um, coalition building, um, persuasion, um, keeping hopes alive, uh, making sure that you don't tell people that you know it best, but that they know it better than you. These are the things that work in politics, in getting things done. Because I think that in 2004, the mistake that the Minister for Health and I did in pushing that social health insurance bill in Parliament is that we didn't first of all go out to, to, to bring on our side people who are potentially opposed to this thing. We didn't, even the Minister for Finance, we didn't bring him on our side, really, if I remember well. But then subsequently, in 2008, up to when we were doing the NHIF, although we tried very hard to, to have this called stakeholders, the term was brought into our vocabulary called stakeholders, people holding stakes. 
that, that bringing them together and supporting you only works when uh, key, key, key sectors, key, key persons are also on your side, like the president and all that. So these are some of the lessons I learned. It's very difficult to summarize them, but, but really uh, that is what I learned things are when you're in position or decision making, like in government. And the last lesson I learned is that don't feel too bad when you fail. Because perhaps, I don't know what your experience was, but perhaps on a day-to-day -day basis, there are too many initiatives which don't see the light of the day, but which are pretty good. So you, you, you record them and hope they will appear in your memoirs one of these days. <laughs> the second thing that you raised was, uh, if I would have to go back, what would I do differently? Uh, I don't know. I don't really know. Because if, you, if I were to go back, the context would be very different. You know, things change so much. And then it depends on, on, on what kind of people you arrive back with in government. I mean, the coalition of people, the congregation of people, the configuration of people you arrive back with in government. The perimeters were so different that if you try to, 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 to revisit, maybe even be more dangerous, but I think what you do different is not to commit the same mistakes you committed before, because then you'd be very foolish. I think the thing is that you, you learn from those mistakes, study the context in which you are working, uh, look at the, uh, the, the, the policies you are pursuing, and do it smarter. Yes, sir. My name is David Egwa. I'm a member of staff of School of Public Health. And um, I've been here for the last five years. I'm in the Genetics and Complex Diseases Department. Can you speak a, just a little bit louder? Is that on? That's on, right? Okay. Just yeah. a little bit louder. Thank you. Well, um, my question is, and uh, this is something I believe that there's a connection between health and poverty. Mm -hmm. And uh, for people like me who are here, how can we help in terms of uh, uh, getting that message across to the, our governments in Africa that they need to improve on the health if they want the poverty levels to improve, or rather, uh, to eradicate poverty. Yeah. Or there's, you know, there's another argument, just goes the other way, that they need to alleviate poverty, poverty. in order to help improve health. health yes. And I know that that's a hot question, yeah. but um, we should allow him to have a stance on one side or the other. Yeah, okay. Indeed. And how can a person like me help Help, out? yeah, good. There we go. You know, if you remember the MDGs, the MDGs say that abolish poverty or eradicate poverty. That was the main aim. That was kind of the chapeau. But then there were now these detailed ways of abolishing poverty. And the health MDGs were just one aspect. They two key issues in health that MDGs thought were very important, and I know they are important, is improving maternal health and reducing child mortality. Because if you reduce mortality of children, you'll have a bigger population, a healthy population, and so on. But after so many years of pursuing the MDGs, uh, and when, we were, when I was in planning in 2005, we, said, we sat down and said, 2015 is only 10 years away. 
if you're going to achieve these MDGs in 10 years, what resources do we need between now and 2015? And we sat down with our experts, Treasury and so on, and said, look, we need 4.1 trillion Kenyan shillings. I don't know how much that is in dollars, but you can work it out. The Kenyan budget then was only about 850 billion Kenyan shillings. Now it is 1.3 trillion Kenyan shillings. In 2015, it's just around the corner. So you say, but are we going to be able to abolish poverty by 2015, let alone have better health outcomes? Then I began thinking recently that, you know, we are spending too much time just focusing on the money we need, the money we need to eradicate poverty and money is necessary yet, but there must be other things that we need too. I think we need awareness among people of what they can do to have better health and what they can do together with government to fight poverty. Because if we all focus as government and people that what is needed is money, you may be moving some potential out of the stage unnecessarily. For example, it is said that preventive healthcare definitely is very important in health. Lifestyle and so on. Do all these things need money, changing lifestyle that is need money, both for the poor and the rich? You go to the slums of Nairobi and you find that people prefer using the little money they have to buy processed food, which is very dangerous to their health. Supposing they were aware that you use that money to buy the vegetable you despise. Maybe then you have, have fewer mothers giving birth with, to children with hydrocephalus because they're eating good vegetables. So awareness, it has come to me, Jennifer, is, is a very important aspect of meeting MDGs, and it costs less. Secondly, uh, which is important, is that um, access. You remember in 2003, when we had a daring policy of saying we are opening up schools to everybody, there was a huge hue crying, but can we afford it? In fact, can we afford it had been the campaign against the free primary school education. But once it was done, somehow access was possible under those difficult circumstances. And we have kept on improving access to primary school education to the extent that when the coalition government, the grand coalition government in which I served as Minister of Medical Services was in power, we started talking of free secondary school education. But I don't think the resources have improved that much. Yes, they have improved because donor funding came in heavily to finance free primary school education. But until the government made that decision, donors would not have come. So I think first and foremost, between you and I, one, let us help whatever government is in Kenya at any point to pursue much more imaginative policies. And I've said that the independent government in the 60s was much more imaginative than the government subsequently. Remember in the 60s is when we did a lot of things. They were daring, they started things. They could rush into the night and do something. These days, we, we don't, we're not as daring. Sometimes I, I blame it in too many 
noisy stakeholders which do not have focused program but want to be on the stage and be heard and can be quite an obstacle sometimes to decision making. Not that I'm against civil society, I'm a product of civil society, but civil society too might be focused in its own options and in its own proposals. If it's just a question of being busy bodies, then you can have a syndrome of non-decision making which takes you nowhere. Can you go back <clears throat> to the 60s for a moment? Yeah. And, uh, and talk about uh, what it was like when Kenya hit independence, achieved it, fought for it, had a bitter lead up to it, and uh, what people were thinking and what you might want to re-evoke <clears throat> uh, for Kenyans in this next phase of their political life. What were some of the strains, I mean, the, the themes that um, you thought were really positive and probably should be reinforced now? I think I remember very clearly because I was a high school kid uh, when we went to the independence celebrations. I was at Lance High School. And we were the first to sing the national anthem during the celebrations in 63, as Jomo Kenyatta raised the Kenyan flag and the Duke of Edinburgh lowered the Union Jack. It, I remember that moment very, very, very well. But one thing I remember about independence, which made a permanent mark in my mind, was Tom Boyer's statement. Tom Boyer was the Secretary General of the ruling party then, a very brilliant young minister and Secretary General. He made a statement, Calestas, which stick to my mind up to this very day. That's this freedom that we have won, we are prepared to defend it to death this freedom that we have won. We are prepared to defend it to death. Now, why do I say this? Because since then, most African governments have not really defended this freedom. The, the repression, the authoritarianism, the detention with the struggle, the, 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 the big man syndrome and all that, and the, 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 the politics of exclusion, uh, which, which exclusion the economic sectors, political sectors, and so on, has limited the arena of freedom for a lot of people. When people feel that they are trapped in poverty all their lives, they are not defending that freedom with all their lives, defending something else. So I think that statement by Mboya that this freedom we are prepared to defend into our lives is something that I think we should make alive in our constitutions, in our practices and so on. Unfortunately, the present constitution in Kenya has revived that spirit. The, the Bill of Rights in the Constitution is very robust, like the right to health and all that. So I believe that maybe after so many years in the Constitution, we have kind of rekindled Tom Boyer's statement. Uh, and I hope that all policies that we are going to pursue will open up the frontiers of free freedom, the frontiers of opportunity to most citizens in, in our societies. I think, I think that's perhaps the biggest inheritance for independence. And secondly, and finally, the, the achievements of the 60s, even the state corporations that did very good things, but that were later sabotaged by the elites and turned into avenues for primitive accumulation and prebendal politics. In the 60s, they performed fantastic jobs. Calestas, if you remember, the National Housing Corporation, and headed by people like Ayan, did fantastic jobs, but later, of course, uh, corruption and, 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 and clientelism that came much later 
uh, really sabotage what the state could do for the people. And these are the things we must really continue to try and reverse. <clears throat> that account, um, uh, a personal one, you know, a boy's view of the raising and lowering of flag is, is uh, beautiful. It also is um, a statement about how far um, Africa more generally has come, but also 50 years out, 50 years out, what, what now has to be rekindled. And it, it's, it's true in all societies when you get somewhat comfortable and when you take some things for granted and when they become encrusted elites and there's much more money than there was, Kenya now versus Kenya in 1960, uh, gets more complex to do things. Uh, but the, the path I see in your um, career uh, and the passion I saw in your thinking when um, we had these discussions as a group about Southern Africa um, suggests that, that you're not very encrusted with all the new stuff, that you still have that line of sight about you know, what's necessary, how you move a population, how you deal with failure, uh, where you intend to go. And uh, I, I think that's very inspiring. However, um, or perhaps <clears throat> because of that, I feel I can ask you this question, which is, where do you want to go now? It probably isn't going to be Minister of Medical Services. God forbid. Uh, <laughs> so, um, and you may want to speak about it more generally because, you know, office and appointments, those are matters of, you know, luck and, and intent. But just if you, in terms of the next 50 years, where would you like to go? <laughs> I hope they will be 50. But nonetheless, uh, uh, well, no, I, I would still be in Kenya doing something in the context of our times uh, in which whichever arena but i like to go back to academics really i mean this this is a very good opportunity that i've had here and i think i'll continue that but secondly my wife and i dorothy we started what we call the africa cancer foundation as a result of the experience we went through and uh, africa cancer foundation is a non-governmental organization not for profit and our first concern was to raise awareness a bit about cancer. And because we found, I myself, I was very ignorant. I mean, because of my ignorance, uh, I could have suffered even more. And if as Minister of Medical Services, I was so ignorant, then we started to say, what about the others? So we, we really want to fight or make cancer awareness, and awareness in general, a very important thing. Wellness, very important. And we're working on that. The other thing that uh, uh, I would like to do really is after being in government and after being in politics for a long time, how do you hand over the experience to future generations? How do you, how do you pass over the button as it were? One way of passing over the button is to provide knowledge, explain to people what happened, what, what problems you faced. For example, just when I became a minister, I could not get a single book which could tell me about the experience of the ministry since independence. Just copper so knowledge about the health sector, it wasn't there. 
there were bits and pieces here and there, government documents and so on. I'm very interested in just doing something, a compendium, a political economy of health delivery systems in Kenya, that somebody coming to Kenya and wanting to know about the health system can at least pick up and say, well, information is here, some analysis is here, that kind of thing. So I think um, uh, the time that we have, Jennifer, now and in the future, these are the kind of things that I think I'd like to do in, in a modest way. So giving back, raising awareness, transmit, creating and transmitting knowledge. Um, this is the season of your time in your life, which is going to be very, very productive for us and very useful to us. Um, we have time for a very short question and I'm afraid a very short answer. Does anyone want to take that opportunity? So what I would like to ask then is, <clears throat> it, during this time that you're here with us, will you be very sure to make the connections with the students who've come to this forum, but also with the many students around the school that have not yet had a chance to meet you? Will you please try to have an open door? I know you have. And I know it's hard to maintain, but uh, I think there is so much that people can learn from you in smaller conversations. Uh, so that would be something I would um, ask you to do. I don't always have that sense about some of the visiting ministers, but um, here I think it's very, very important, very important. And <clears throat> secondly, um, will you stay in good touch with us when you go back? I know you will. Julio will maintain that. Um, but it, from the standpoint of following your career, I think it is um, very, very useful for a number of you, um, students and people at the start of your careers, and then some of people like me who actually have moved in parallel with you, um, it would be important to, to stay in touch, share, uh, their, share thoughts and insights and um, compare new and old wounds. And uh, it will be a real blessing for us as a school to have you active in Kenya. And Thank you. really appreciate your being here with us. Thank you, Jennifer. I've learned a lot from the students already. I enjoy talking to them the, the little time we've had. Uh, and I hope they will give me the opportunity to keep talking to them and discussing and asking questions. We had a wonderful class yesterday. Uh, so I hope that will continue. Definitely, Jennifer, I'm yes. really happy to reconnect with you after so many years. Yes, me too. Uh, it was wonderful. Uh, we don't not just also just uh, uh, work at the the Chicago Committee for the Liberation of Angola, Mozambique and Guinea-Bissau. But we had a wonderful parties at the African Center in Northwestern University. Just <laughs> yes, as a, a difference. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Can we join in thanking them? This has been a production of Decision Making Voices from the Field at Harvard School of Public Health. You can